In the lecture last week, I began to lay out the foundations of a Christian view of work. And I started with the Christian claim. And it's really a claim. You can't prove it. It's a confession that God is a worker. The very first sentence in the Bible is just such a claim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible doesn't start with proof. It starts with this audacious claim that there was a beginning, and at the beginning, God was working. He was creating. So this notion that the the whole universe, from the stars to starfish, that all of the universe is the handiwork of God, that God, with his wisdom and power, created the world. Now tonight, what I want to do is to return to this beginning of Scripture passage, but pick up another strand. Um, Is the speaker doing weird things? Is there somebody that can fiddle with it? So in your note sheet, um, starting there at the beginning... Again, the first sentence of Scripture in the Bible says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I pointed out last week that this is actually a piece of poetry. It's a poetic technique called a marasmus, where you pick two terms of extreme. And you use them as a poetic way of saying everything, like me saying to Janelle... I love you day and night means I love you all the time. So when the first sentence of the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it means not just God made what's up there and down here. It means God made everything that exists. Now the second sentence of the Bible says this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, what we're seeing in the second sentence of the Bible is that in in the first sentence, God makes everything, but he makes it in a raw state. And that observation is critical for the whole theology of work that comes out of Scripture. That the first sentence of the Bible shows us that God's act of creation wasn't creating things in their final state, but it was creating things in their raw state. So it was unformed. And then there's this image of the Spirit of God hovering over this unformed blob. And it's really a beautiful image. It's the image of the Spirit of God poised for work. It's the image, uh, if you can imagine, of a potter over the wheel with the lump of clay, poised, looking at the lump of clay. It's, It's the image of a sculptor looking at a tree. And the sculptor seeing what's in the tree that can be taken out of it. It's the image of Michelangelo looking at the lump of marble and seeing what other people can't see, seeing the pieta. Right? It's the, that's the image. The Spirit of God hovering over the water, it's the image of a worker that is a, a craftsman, an artist, poised, ready for work. And this brings us to the third sentence of Scripture. 
where God begins to form and organize and structure all of these raw materials. So on the first day, God forms the day and the night out of the raw materials of creation. And on the second day, he forms the skies. And on the third day, he forms the continents and the seas. And then halfway through day three, God shifts gears. And instead of forming, he begins to fill. He begins to take these things that he's separated and formed, and he begins to fill them. So he fills the earth with plants and trees. And on the fourth day, he fills the heavens with the sun and the moon and the stars. And on the fifth day, he fills the waters with fish, and he fills the skies with birds. And on the sixth day, he fills the earth with animals. And then halfway through day six, the Christian account of creation is that God stopped. And listen to what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God... Do we maybe want to find another chord? Is there a chance it's the chord? Can we... Hello? Okay, that sounds good. So... The sentence says that God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then God gives humans five commands. He looks at the humans and he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, number three, subdue the earth, number four, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So these five commands... Um, is the Christian claim here that God looks at humans and says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, and have dominion over it. Now, what's interesting is that the first three commands he already gave to the animals a few sentences before. But the final two commands, to have dominion and to subdue the earth, this is unique to humans, that the job of the human is to rule over this creation. Now think about this. There's this incredible story being told that God makes the raw materials of the universe. And then the next thing you do is you see the Spirit of God hovering over the raw materials like a potter hovered over, hovered over a blob of clay. And then in the next scene, the potter's at work. God's drawing out the potential of these materials by forming and filling. And then suddenly this working, creating God stops. He clears his throat and he announces to the whole cosmos that he's making a creature in his own image to carry on his work. So he makes humans. And he looks at the man and the woman and he says, Tag, you're it. You've got my image. Now do what I've been doing. Work, create, shape, fill, form, organize, pull out of all this raw material. It's potential. Take the world that's been given to you and make something of it. Bring something out of this world that was only there in potential. This is what image bearing is all about. It's the fundamental task and the greatest power God has given to humans. It's what we were made to do. And all the other commands in Scripture have to be understood in light of this. 
I mean, I really think it's almost impossible to overemphasize the first command to humans in Scripture. To have dominion to subdue. Now, now, when you're trying to think about work in light of the Christian view, you have to start there. But then something important happens in the next part of the story. The Christian claim is that Adam and Eve sinned. And it's interesting to notice what they do immediately after their sin. Does anybody know what the very first thing they do is? They make clothing. They work. I mean, sewing, this is work. They make clothing out of fig leaves. They make loincloths. Now, the reason this is important is because it shows us how deeply work is embedded in the human creature. See, the Christian vision is that even when sin shatters and alienates us from God, it does not remove from us the ability or the desire or the power to bear God's image, to work, to imitate His work of creating and pulling out of this world its potential. The ability for clothing was already in the world. And then they do that right after. I mean, and if you're studying civilizations, clothing is an, an important artifact. And the first thing we're told about humans after sin is that they make this cultural artifact. Now, if you continue reading through the Bible story by story, it's important to notice that from here on, the biblical authors, over and over, they highlight the work of humans. Right after that, there's a story where we're told Abel is a shepherd and Cain is a farmer. That's identifying them by their jobs. It's actually a moment in cultural evolution, animal husbandry, and agriculture. And then later on, we're told about someone who invents musical instruments. And then after that, we're told about someone who forges tools. Well, look, if I was taking an archaeology class, right, these are the important markers in the evolution of civilizations. These work abilities. Now, what's important to see is that sin does not stop humans from doing what they were made to do. God, it didn't change that issue. Now, work is broken. In fact, it's interesting that after Adam and Eve rebel against the, their king, the next sin named in the Bible is a murder. But it's interesting that the Bible mentions that it was done in a cultivated field. So it locates continued sin within the realm of work. Soon after that, there's this guy named Noah. He's a righteous man and he plants a vineyard. Well, horticulture, this is an important moment in cultural development, but that's a good thing. It's a great thing. It's one of the miracles of God, which sugar on the skin of a grape does. But then Noah gets drunk off the wine and he does some things in his culture that are profoundly scandalous. And soon after that, one of the lowest points in the Bible, it's this amazing story, it's called the Tower of Babel, where humans take all of these work abilities, their skill, their intelligence, their language, their imagination, their organizational abilities, their technology, all of it, and they shake their fist in the face of God with their work. Now what I'm pointing out is that the Christian vision of work is a very nuanced vision. 
for all of its moments of beauty and ingenuity, after sin, work in this world is beautiful, but it's also ugly. It's our jobs are difficult and they're fraught with dead ends. They're filled with deadly repercussions. Now, making a massive leap forward in the biblical story of work. Lots of good work and lots of bad work later. We get to this moment when Jesus Christ shows up on the scene. It's the climax of the, of the narrative arc of the Bible. The life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And at the center of Jesus' message is this statement. The kingdom of God is at hand. At last, God's kingdom is arriving. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that he couches his message in terms of a kingdom. He wasn't simply delivering some news report that you could listen to and learn some new information about what's going on in the universe. He was describing a whole new culture. And he was judging all of the cultures that we humans have created by the work of our hands and by our minds. Now, because Jesus talked in these ways, it eventually leads to his death. He's impaled on a cross. But in the biblical story, the cross is not the end. It's the turning point. And last week I pointed out this amazing sentence in the Bible, part of the Bible we call Colossians. It's there at the bottom of page 1. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now what we see here is that at the climax of the biblical narrative, in Jesus... God is at work to restore us and our work to himself. So that's a blank there if you're a note taker. Jesus restores us and um, ourselves and our work to himself. In other words, that the kingdom of God is not just about the transformation of our souls. It's also about the transformation of our work. Now one more jump. This time to the end of the biblical story. Um, The last book of the Bible is a book called Revelation. And uh, the next to last chapter is Revelation chapter 21. And here we get an image of what life will look like according to the Christian claim. when When God finishes his work of making all things new. And it's really interesting. In Revelation 21, there's this amazing kind of science fiction-ish city that comes down out of the skies to the earth. And it's a city that the author of the book is saying God has prepared. And then it goes through this long description of how beautiful this city is. It's actually a description of the handiwork involved in the city. It describes how the walls are built, 
It describes how the gates are built. It, it's, it's like reading an architectural digest or something. But what's wonderful is that in every facet of the city, it's beautiful. People sit around all the time debating what, what this part of the foundation and what this part of the city means. Well, what it means is it's pretty. That's what it means. It means it's beautiful in every detail. So th- what's, what's interesting about the Bible as literature is that in the beginning of the Bible, God makes a beautiful creation. And at the end of the Bible, he makes a beautiful city. But once again, we see the same image, a consistent view of God, a God who is a craftsman, a God who works. And he delights in working. He delights in forming and filling and shaping and drawing out of, his, of these raw materials all of their potential. So at the very end of the Christian scriptures is this city that is the work of a master architect, a master craftsman. But here's the important thing. When it starts to describe what is in the city, it is not only God's handiwork that is found in the city. Listen carefully to one little preposition that shows up on the next to the last page of the Bible. And in this sentence where the city is being described... It says, by its light, by the light of the city, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory, and here's the preposition, into it. See, it's not only the handiwork of God in that city. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And then a few sentences later... They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Now, the author of this part of the Christian scriptures is actually riffing off of another author in Christian scripture by the name of Isaiah, who wrote hundreds and hundreds of years before him. And Isaiah had described the vision of the end of history. And in that vision, there's a city in Isaiah's vision. And this city is teeming with cultural goods. There are domesticated animals, there are ships, there are precious minerals and jewels and timber. And the city, the city at the center of it is a center of commerce a place that receives vessels, goods, and currency. So when the last book of the Bible echoes this vision, and it says that this city at the end of time will be filled with the glory of the nations, what you're seeing is that the city will be filled with work, pieces of work. The glory of a nation is simply its greatest and most distinctive pieces of work. In Isaiah's vision, hundreds of years before, the greatest cultural achievements of the greatest powers around him were the camels of the desert merchants. It had so revolutionized trade. 
these camels. It was the carefully cultivated timber of a place called Lebanon. It was the large and sturdy ships of Tarshish. And Isaiah says those things will be in that city. So get this. The great and distinctive cultural goods that we humans produce with our hands and that we produce with our minds, it's not just the physical stuff. It's also the world of ideas. This is the last, the blank on the back of, on page two. These great pieces of work become the furniture of heaven. That's where the Bible ends. It begins with God's handiwork and God saying to humans, tag, you're it, and I'll do some of this. And then at the end, there's this astounding image where God receives that handiwork into this eternal place. That's remarkable. It's an audacious claim. It's nothing that a Christian can prove. It's only something we can confess and claim. So when the last book of the Bible is echoing this earlier vision, it's saying that our work can become the furniture of heaven. The city of God is filled not just with God's glory and God's presence and not just with God's stunningly beautiful creations and not just with redeemed persons from every cultural background, but it is also filled with redeemed human work and science and art and philosophy and government and law and technology and ritual and the list goes on and on. Now, Will everything that humans create find a place in the new heavens and the new earth? Clearly not. There's this place in the Bible where it says, Swords, whose only purpose is to take human life, will have no place in the new creation. Swords will be turned into plowshares. Notice, they will be turned into an instrument of what? Of work. Spears will be turned into pruning hooks. All the dead ends of history will be forgotten. And they'll be left behind. So let me boil it down. In the end, when God sums up history and makes everything new, the Christian claim, the Christian vision, is that the new heavens and the new earth will be a place where God's command to the first humans, to Adam and Eve, is fulfilled. The new heavens and the new earth will be the place where all the potential of the world, remember all that raw material, where all of its potentials will be pulled out. If you think you've tasted great wine now, just wait. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? It's going to be this place where all of the potentials will be discovered and released by creative, cultivating people. So the Christian view is that souls are not the only eternal thing. Our work has the potential of being eternal. Our our work will pass through the fires of God's judgment. And if it survives, it will be purified. You know, fire can do two things, right? It can destroy, but it can also purify. And our work will go through that fire. That's what the Bible says. Some of it will be burned up because it was crap. And there's lots of ways work can be crap. It can be bad because it was 
wrong in some sort of way or can be bad because its quality just doesn't deserve that city. I mean, this is amazing to think about, right? For a housewife to say, the work I've done today, when it goes through the fire, will it be, will it survive? Was it done well? When a teacher teaches and gets to the end of the day and says, was it done well? How will this stand up? See, the day of judgment is not just about the soul, but it's about our work. Now, what I'm going to do is wrap all of this up by walking through how I think this, this vision, this view of work shows us how our work actually matters to God. Whatever your work is. And not all work are you paid for. Right? I have lots of work. Part of my work is being a husband. Part of my work is being a father. I have the work of friendship in my life. Right? This world was created with the capacity for friendship. How am I shaping and responding to that? And so to do this, what I'm going to do is walk through, I didn't invent this, many people have found it's helpful to think in terms of three aspects of God's ongoing work in the world and how my work links up with that. So, three ways your work is connected to God's work. First, God's ongoing providential work and your work. And what I mean by God's ongoing providential work is this. Remember what I've been saying the last, this week and last week. With wisdom and power, God created the world. So God is the source of everything. He's the ultimate source of everything. But here's the key. At the heart of the Christian view of work is not only the claim that God created everything but that he created everything with potential. And then he said to humans, develop the potential. It is a potential within human beings to have government. It is a potential for a field to be cultivated. There's lots of potentials. And at the heart of the Christian claim is that the world wasn't created perfectly developed. See, it's interesting, isn't it, when you look at um, Disney movies... Disney movies have this idea called repristinization. That before humans came, it was better. Right? All the Disney movies, right? I mean, The Lion King. Humans are always the source. What, what movie were we watching the other day with our children? Um, I don't, but every time a human was involved, it was some animated movie about animals. Every human interaction was negative. See, that's a repristinization view. That's the view that, that where it started was best. And humans' action upon creation is always a devolution. But the Christian claim is the opposite of that. That it starts in a raw state. And the Christ, I, mean, I mean, just think about wine. Wine does not exist without humans. That's a technological advancement. Now... What's going on here is the claim that God is a worker 
but that the work of God did not stop when he tagged humans. In the Genesis account, we read that God created humans in his own being. He said, okay, you carry on my task. You pull out of all of this its, its potential and get this. When we carry out this project in our own work, whatever your work is, you are imaging God. You're doing something God likes. So you're sharing in the creative activity of God. Another way of putting this is that God works in the world with human hands. Through our work, God provides. You know how God feeds people? Well, the Christian claim is that he feeds people through farmers. I mean, it's, it's quite an audacious claim that God is working through the farmers to feed people. You know how God works justice in his world? Through the lawyers. No jokes, please. See, do you see how huge it is to claim That by fashioning a world of potential, God made a choice in his creative activity to work in the world through human hands. So it's through our work that we participate in God's ongoing providence for the human race. Look at it this way. One of the most famous things that Christianity has offered the world is something called the Our Father. A prayer that Jesus created. And one of the lines in this prayer that Jesus told us to pray is give us this day our daily bread. So according to what I'm saying now, think about how that prayer is answered. God answers the prayer by in the morning when I pray it, already people are busy at work in bakeries. Providing bread. I love the way the National Council of Catholic Bishops has put this. They said, when men and women are faithful stewards and caring for the earth, they can justly consider that by their labor, they are unfolding the Creator's work. That's a beautiful image. Number two, God's restraining work in your work. There's a doctrine in a part of Christianity called the Reformed side of Christianity. And this doctrine is often called the doctrine of common grace. It's a way of identifying that part of God's work in the world is that God is restraining evil. He's holding things back. The Christian claim is that things could be much worse. Now many of your jobs participate with God in this part of his work. It's easy to think here in terms of the legal system or a judge or a policeman. When we work to restrain evil, it's just like the farmer working to produce bread. It is partnering with God in his ongoing work. But think about it not only in terms of kind of the legal system. Think about it in terms of an executive at a firm who uses his or her influence to sway a firm away from making ethically dubious decisions. See, there, there are some of you in this room who have cultural capital. 
You have influence. There are some people that are young in this room and one day you will have influence. You will have cultural capital and you will face moments when you can participate with God in restraining evil. Part of what this shows is that the Christian life does not, does not consist in moving away from this world with all of its brokenness and need. Martin Luther once wrote, the Christian life sends you into the world. It sends you to those who have needs that your abilities can meet. The Christian vision of work shows us that Christianity is not a religion focused on leaving the world behind to live the life after death. But Christianity is about living the life of faith in the midst of a broken and evil world. And a third way that our work can link up with God's. We saw earlier in this passage of scripture printed on the front of your note sheet. That Jesus is working for the renewal of all things. He's restoring things. He's pushing out the kingdom of light and he's pushing back the kingdom of darkness. Now what I'm talking about here, many of you know that evil in this world not only exists in the individual, but that institutions can embody evil. I I grew up in Houston, Enron apparently had an ethos that was bad. And some of the stories that came out on the streets of Enron about the culture within Enron before its collapse were scandalous. That the very structures of our society are in need of change as much as the individual's who are a part of them, are in need of change. It's not only our personal lives that are broken, according to the Christian view, it's society itself and all the spheres of society. Farming in America is profoundly broken. Education is deeply broken. Broken. The legal system is broken. And a significant aspect of, of this Christian view is that it's not just individuals that act contrary to the grain of the universe, but social institutions and their structure reflect the fallenness of humankind. Now, the point here is that not only should we serve God in our work, but, we, but our work itself must be brought into alignment with God's will. I mean, some of you know that over the last six months or so, I've become enthralled with a cookbook by a guy named Robert Farrar Capon, and the cookbook's named The Supper of the Lamb. Lamb for seven, eight ways or something is the subtitle. It's the most amazing book I've ever read about how to be truly human here in the bounty of God's broken but good creation. And right in the middle of this book, Capon says something that, perfectly summarizes what I'm trying to say here with this third way our work links up with God. He writes, when we go to work, we go forth by obedience to vocation to draw the world into the passion. When we go to work, we go forth by obedience to our vocation. Why? To draw the world into the passion. Now, these three ways that your work links up with God's work, 
I found that when people can make connections between what they're doing, whether they're waiting tables or mowing lawns or students being students, when you can make a connection between studying for a geometry test or advocating in a court or teaching students or being a grandmother or being a farmer, when you can make a connection between your work and these larger purposes of God, it can put some fire in your belly. Now I'm going to stop here. Even though there, there's a huge need to take this further, there's questions, huge questions, like how does the Christian view of work help us with the practical and often difficult problem of choosing a vocation? Just today I had lunch with, with somebody who's struggling through. I mean, for some people, they're born knowing what they're doing, but for most people, this is one of the most difficult choices in life. That's a huge question. It's so important to ask. Or another one. What about those of us who are presently stuck in jobs where all the freedom and responsibility have been taken from us and it's placed in the hands of of managerial elite? The line worker that has no freedom and no real responsibility. The tyranny of scientific management in the workplace has resulted in a profound dehumanization of the worker. What do you do when you're stuck in that kind of job where you have no freedom to think or be creative and you have no responsibility? What about those of us who are coming to the unsettling realization that the demands of our career have taken our entire life and they give us little in return but an empty promise of happiness and some sort of material affluence? Now, these are huge and difficult questions. But what I'm trying to say is that this Christian vision of work, when you can take these particular questions and examine them in light of a Christian view of work, you have something to work with. Now, every one of these questions, the answer to it is going to vary from case to case. I mean, it's going to be deeply particularized to a situation. But what I'm saying is this whole vision of work gives us a framework out of which we can answer these tough kinds of questions.